Ian, just before this week's show, a um, bit of a warning. There is some bad language. How bad? Um, it's the C word. You're fine. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray, and today we are going to talk about two linked areas of British public life, healthcare and social care, or to give them some kind of overarching category, care. Now, given that the NHS and the nation's various care home providers are both in the business of caring for people, you would think that they would work together smoothly and seamlessly. But what a short podcast that would make. And also, it doesn't actually happen like that. So today, we're going to hear from the Eye's medical correspondent, Dr. Phil Hammond, also known as MD, and also from Heather Mills, one of the Eye's investigative team who writes in the back about what exactly is going wrong. And as a palate cleanser, we will finish by taking a look at all things literary with the eye's in-house critic, DJ Taylor. But first, Jeremy Hunt has been dangling his balls over the balcony of the British Medical Association. Not my words, but those of Phil Hammond, writer of our Medicine Balls column. The health secretary has been fighting junior doctors over the prospect of a seven-day working week, and that is how we started our conversation. Well, he has. Jeremy Hunt has indeed dangled his balls over the balcony of the BMA, and I think been surprised at how vigorously they've been squeezed by junior doctors not just the BMA because not all junior doctors are members of the BMA but the thing about doctors is that they're not actually very radical whatever Jeremy Hunt says but they do like evidence and they do like science so when politicians start misquoting science or taking conclusions from very uncertain trials that can't be justified they get really angry and there's a lot of bad science Jeremy Hunt's done and I think that's what's annoyed them more than anything so what's one of the examples of that kind of... Well, one of the examples is, do, do more people die at weekends, and if they do, why? Yeah. Now, the research that's been done has been done between Friday and Monday. So it's four days, not just weekends. And yes, within that, you seem a bit safer during the day on a Saturday, but overall, maybe 11,000 more people die than would be expected. But what does that mean? It could mean that people in the weekends are a lot sicker because they can't get access to a GP. So it may not be nothing, anything to do with staffing levels. If it was to do with staffing levels, it might be due to the fact there aren't enough nurses or we don't have enough X-ray or MRI scans at the weekend. So there are all sorts of complexities. And if Jeremy Hunt had drawn a hypothesis and said, I'm going to work on the hypothesis that it might be down to staffing levels of, say, junior doctors, and I'll do a pilot study and I'll try to prove it, everyone would have said fine. But he's drawn the sweeping conclusion that it must be down to... Uh, levels of medical staffing and if you talk to junior doctors yeah they'd like more junior doctors there but actually usually they say we'd like more nurses more backup support more social care beds more ability to discharge patients so we can make space for the patients who need to come in so it's a lot more complex than the very simplistic argument that Jeremy Hunt has put forward. I think what's interesting is that of the eight billion that I guess Simon Stevens asked for he's chief executive of NHS England and he came up with a single the five-year forward view that George Osborne and everyone has leapt on, saying, oh, yes, well, he said we might be able to make £22 billion worth of efficiencies. Therefore, to make up the £30 billion gap that's predicted because people are living longer with more conditions, the Treasury only needs to provide £8 billion of that. Well, Simon Stevens' prediction depended a lot on actually people self-caring and getting physically fitter and not eating junk food and cutting down on their alcohol, which hasn't shown any signs of happening. And already we've sort of hit the buffers and have a two billion predicted deficit, perhaps more just in hospitals this year. So Simon Stevens came out and said, golly, you need to front load this eight billion you've promised. You've promised it at some stage before 2020. We need four billion now. And George Osborne has pretended to give 3.8 billion uh, in 2016 and 17. But in fact, one and a half billion of that comes from the existing Department of Health budget. And they're cutting back on things we need, like public health to stop people smoking and drinking too much. And they're cutting back on clinical training, uh, including the cost of junior doctor placement. So not all of that money is new. 
Simon Stevens said, if you want to try and introduce seven-day working, so to make every day the same, so we do routine services across all specialties, including Saturdays and Sundays, that would require extra funding. George Osborne has said, no, that's got to come from the extra money I'm giving you. And if you adjust NHS funding for increasing age, funding year on year has actually fallen. So in real money terms, the increase has been less than 1% since about 2010 and continues to be so till 2020. And that, we've never managed that before. We've always managed on about a 4% increase in our budget to make up for increasing growing population, elderly population as well. And we've never managed this flatline funding. So this will have existed across 10 years. That is the current situation in the NHS. But what about funding for social care, particularly for people in old age? Here is Heather Mills on where that money comes from. That local authorities are responsible for funding social care and, of course, individuals themselves, if they have assets of more than about £23,500, then they have to fund their own social care. And as a lot of people own houses, then eventually that social care will come out of their estate. So as in they, they will have to sell their house because that's an asset worth more than £23,000? Yes, yeah. but the house isn't sold if there's somebody who needs to live in the house, if you like. So right. quite often, your care will be funded by your local authority until after your death. And then if there's nobody living in the house, your house will then be sold and all but 23,500 will go towards the cost of the care that you've run up for however many years you were right. in, a, in a care home, for example. The big difference between the NHS and social care system is the NHS is still a state-funded institution, whereas a lot of social care, most of social care, maybe 90%, is private. So in the NHS model, hospitals just go into debt, hoping the Treasury will bail them out. In the social care system, companies just go bankrupt. They say, look, we can't provide this service anymore at a profit, so we're just going to have to stop doing it. Or we're going to stop taking the NHS-funded or the social care state-funded beds and just concentrate on the private market. So a lot of them now are just going after richer people who are self-funding, who are having to sell their own houses, and they're saying we can't take the state-funded cases anymore because the money isn't enough for us to make a profit. Doesn't that presumably put more of a strain on the NHS if these yes. people are not being yeah, looked after so that way? You know, you can... You, you can choose a number of a dozen probably canaries in the mine or smoke alarms for the state of the NHS. One would be junior doctor's morale. Another would be the bed manager in any acute hospital desperately trying to free up 100 beds to do all their routine stuff. And it's full of elderly patients who don't need or want to be in hospital but who can't be discharged elsewhere. Or you could go into a care home that's absolutely on its knees through lack of funding. So all these pinch points are happening simultaneously in the NHS and social care system. So, where exactly is the dividing line between health and social care? Here's Heather again. It's a moot point, really, because a lot of people are in care homes because they have conditions like dementia or Alzheimer's. And even though there might be a physiological trigger for that, the care that they need is deemed to be social care, help with washing and dressing and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and although occasionally they might need a bit of nursing input into that, it's not regarded as a health care need. And so therefore, there's no NHS continuing health care. If you were in there because you had injuries, cancer, other diseases, and, and some people would argue that dementia is a disease in your brain or a physiological in your brain, um, then you can get NHS funding. And there have been occasions where people with dementia have managed to get health funding, but it doesn't happen very often. And most people won't. It's quite interesting that it's 
a bit more of a porous barrier than a lot of people would think. Because so social care covers that side of things. If you need a visitor in your home, for example, yes, if you're elderly. Yes, you need help to get out of bed, if you need a shower, if you need someone to cook your food, all of those kind of things are regarded as social needs. So, for example, a lot of those sound like uh, they're related to old age or to disability. Yep. Those, that's all the social care budget, although some disability-related things may be health, I presume. Yes. Yeah. People will be subject to an assessment and it will be decided whether you qualify for health funding or social funding. It partly depends on your initial disease. So you could have cancer and need help with washing and bathing and you might get that funded fairly easily because your initial diagnosis is cancer. You could have dementia and need washing and bathing and not get it because it's classified as social care needs. It's a complete lottery, to be honest, and all I can say is that it's getting increasingly harder to get any social care funding at all. So the bar is getting higher and higher. You have to be pretty critical now, whatever your condition, to get any social care funding at all. So if you get dementia, the funding will come from social care. If you get cancer, the funding might come from health care. NHS care, yeah. NHS care, exactly. Whereas... Things like children's services Mm. will be social care, even though they have big health implications. Some of them can be, yeah. Some of them. Yeah, yeah. It's just an absolute nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare going through it. And it varies from area to area. So some areas classify it different to others. It's a real postcode lottery if ever there was one. That is the current state of play between health and social care. But there is a plan to deal with it, the extremely catchily named vertical integration. Here is Phil on exactly what that consists of. The idea is that the the more successful hospitals that still have a bit of money in their budget will invest in buying their own social care teams to discharge patients from hospital back to their homes because it's cheaper than keeping them in hospital. So once those people have gone home, the hospital's social care team then Support them and then eventually hands over. But the idea is they provide that immediate support to get people home. And I don't know how long they're doing it for, but Birmingham is one example. And there is, I mean, that's what we call vertical integration and one of the models Simon Stevens keeps on going on about his vanguards well that's one of the new models of care where you integrate health and social care and you integrate health systems vertically so these larger hostels may also end up running general practices so they have a close relationship with out-of-house care to try and stop people coming in unnecessarily it's not just Birmingham who are getting in on the vertical integration act Manchester have recently announced their own scheme, which they have called Devo Mank. Where there is talk of actually devolving the national NHS budget and the responsibility for NHS care to the authorities in Greater Manchester. And then they would work with the local authorities to provide health and social care in that area. It sounds to me like a huge, massive experiment in care and the big danger of course is that this is just another huge NHS reform and part of the criticisms of what's been going wrong with the NHS at the moment is that it's been through so many reforms over recent years and millions have been spent and wasted and that's taken away from care. So how exactly did we get into this preposterous situation? I suppose the Conservatives suddenly let long-term care of the elderly fall off the NHS without much public debate. It used to be there. We used to have all these wards and district general hospitals and community hospitals. And there was a famous case called Leeds Man, which is a patient who had very complex medical and social care needs. And he was sort of the test case where they divided the two up. They said, look, 
we're prepared to pay for these because we're calling them clinical medical needs, but we're not prepared to pay for these basic care and nursing needs. And you still have that absurdity now as if you have cancer, you'll get all your care paid for you, medical care on the NHS, but you have dementia, it's likely that a lot of your care will be classified as social care, and you'll either have to try to get state funding, which is increasingly difficult, or you'll have to pay for it yourself. So it's a nonsense. I mean, in essence, care is care, whether it's health care or social care or self-care, it should be all on the same continuum. But because of the different ways it's funded, that's probably the biggest barrier to integration there is. What are the consequences if healthcare comes from central government, which is ring-fenced, and social care comes from local government, which is not ring-fenced? Here's Heather. I mean, what's happened with, with social care and the reason it is in crisis now is that local authorities who are responsible for it, of course, have are cash-strapped. And they have been since, for the last five years or so, their budgets for social care have been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, while, as we all know, the elderly population is getting bigger and bigger. We're all living longer. You know, I think there's over half a million people now who are now aged over 90. And of course, they draw more inevitably on health care and social care. Um, But the budgets for their care are shrinking dramatically and have done consistently for the last five years. So George Osborne recently announced that with predictions of something like a five billion shortfall in costs to provide social care, he came up with this idea that councils, if they wanted to, could add 2% on their council tax charges, and that would be ring fenced for social care. Now, health care funding has been ring fenced but social care hasn't. So hence, those budgets have shrunk quite dramatically. I think the figure was that its budget's been cut by, as you say, about £5 billion for social care. For social care, over a period of time. There's a £5 shortfall, basically, to provide the social care that's needed now. So George Osborne has decided that councils can raise 2% on their council tax, and that will be ring-fenced to go some way towards meeting the shortfall. Councils have been given the opportunity to raise taxes, albeit by a very small amount, to provide more social care and make up that funding shortfall that they have. But will they take up the Chancellor on his offer? They're going to have to. I was up in Liverpool chairing the NICE conference, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence Conference, and the head of the council came up and said, I will completely have run out of my budget for adult social care in two years. If things are statutory services, you've got to provide them. So there has to be an argument, doesn't it? If it's a statutory service, such as adult or child social care, it has to be provided. So they have to have that conversation. Now, the government may say you're going to have to cut back on whatever, libraries. The trouble is we've now handed over a lot of public health to local authorities as well. Sexual health, there's massive cuts in sexual health services because they've been handed over to local authorities spending. They can't fund social care. So there's a 200 million cut in sexual health services. So all the things that are real. Public health is so important. I think probably it was a mistake to hand it over to local authorities because it's no longer protected and they're having to cut it back to to balance the books. So I think they'll absolutely slash other services, particularly public health services, and that in the long term will be fairly disastrous for healthcare. And that's not the only problem with the Chancellor's 2% levy. Even if everybody did the 2%, and there will be lots of local authorities that probably won't, it would raise £2 billion and you've still got a major shortfall. Is it the case that if you're a poorer local authority, then a 2% rise will make less difference? If, oh, if you've got yeah. more people paying lower rates of council tax, yeah, for example. Absolutely. Yes, it's totally iniquitous because in a big inner city area where people don't have big houses, they have more people on lower band council tax, your 2% isn't going to bring you very much money. 
if you have a massive mansion in Westminster, um, it's clearly going to bring you a lot more money. However, your needs are probably not as much. A, because your residents can afford to pay for their own care largely. And B, because you're bringing in a lot more money. In short, there don't seem to be many options for social care as it's been for the last several years. However, uh, the idea of integrating health and social care back together may be the best chance we have at actually providing a decent standard of social care, which then would lift the burden from the NHS, and it would also crucially lift the burden from local governments. Here's Phil Hammond, a.k.a. MD, one last time. Well, there has to be collaboration in the sense that unless they work as if they were within one system. So if you're suddenly, you suddenly find this out when you've suddenly got somebody sick and their care is split between health and social care and you're running around all over the place. So it's actually gluing it all together. Now, whether we can actually integrate it into one system or whether we just have lots of other systems who are collaborating with each other, I don't know. But this idea that within a certain patch you have a capitated budget for health and social care uh, altogether, I think, has to make sense. The interesting thing is the big idea for the NHS and social care is to have what are known as accountable care organisations. So once we merge health and social care, we merge hospitals and GP practices, we have this defined budget for an entire population. It's all merged into one accountable care organisation. That's, that's the new umbrella term. That's the new umbrella term. That's yeah. when these big companies in America who are used to running these organisations could pop over and say, oh, we'll take over control of that then. So there's a possibility there that there could be a massive transfer of power and money to a private company running an entire accountable care organisation. Clearly, that's something to be continued in another podcast. Thanks to Phil Hammond and Heather Mills. Next up, we are going a bit literary with the man who writes the What You Didn't Miss, a parody on the books pages of The Eye. He writes some of the reviews. He is an integral part of the London literary scene. He is, of course... DJ Taylor, also known as David Taylor. He does two things for the eye. One is the What You Didn't Miss literary parody column, and the other is a goodly portion of Private Eye's book reviews. Here he is on the What You Didn't Miss column. I always maintain that you can make aesthetic points about writing in some ways better by way of parody than by just writing a straight review, because you simply, if you exaggerate deficiencies, then people notice them and laugh and you've you know you've 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 actually done two things you pointed something out and you've made people laugh which i think um, is important the other thing too is that i always say in my defense and i think people kind of recognize is that you have to be pretty good or pretty distinctive in some way to actually merit a parody you know we wouldn't we don't parody the average common or garden novel because what's the point we take some supposedly distinguished writer and parody them or a book about a distinguished person and parody that or the poet. I mean, I've just done the poet laureate for the Chris, you know, for the, the issue that's coming out now. I mean, she's Carol Ann Duffy. It, it, it's a sign of her, her celebrity that she's being parodied in the eye. We don't do anyone. Yeah. You have to be a fairly titanic figure to merit a parody in the eye or your book has to have, have some particular foible or quirk that makes it uh, newsworthy or that it rates this, this, this kind of... Um, yeah. Treatment because there is a yeah you know, there's a long and reputable tradition of, of literary parody that goes all the way back to Thackeray and beyond. So I'm, I'd like to think that how, in however sort of humble a way I'm contributing to this. I think it was someone who once said to Auburn War maybe that after being parodied by him, uh, he couldn't write for a day. You know, he just yeah. he just he sort of <laughs> that doesn't sound he, good. He had his every time he sat down to write, he noticed all the foibles that had been pointed out by Auburn War. 
But knows. you see, but again, that's entirely inevitable because yeah. the thing that successful writers do is the older they get, the more like themselves they write. And you can't help it. And in fact, they, you probably know this story, but in the 90, I think it was in the 1960s or the 1970s, the New Statesman, one of their weekend competitions, had a competition for a parody of a Graham Greene novel. And Greene entered himself and was very cross to only come second. <laughs> and in fact, but it's, it's an entirely rep- – I mean, I, again, similarly, I, the, there's a letter – uh, that Philip Larkin wrote, I think, to Kingsley Amos or one of his friends in the early 1960s, where he said that Anthony Thwaite, that was a younger poet, much younger, slightly younger than Larkin, that, that Thwaite actually writes the best kind of Larkin poems these days. And he meant it as a compliment. And Thwaite accepted it as such, I think. You know, it wasn't that he was being plagiarised. He was writing in a certain tradition, and he did it in some ways better than the person who had initiated it. On the reviews, then, so yes. going from the, the what you didn't miss to the reviews... How many good reviews has Private Eye ever printed of books? Total. Is it single figures? Good reviews. Now, let me see. I think it wasn't me wrote a good review of Paul O'Grady's memoirs once. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle. <laughs> and people wrote in and said, come on. And I think I wrote, not that long ago, wrote a reasonably good review of the... The William Boyd, yes, yes, and we and uh, you see, I, I think that came about because um, I'm quite a William Boyd fan. I always think that there's a certain amount of snobbishness about people like William Boyd, who are very, very decent, you know, proficient writers, but they they never quite sort of they're never quite up there with Amos and McEwan and the other people in that generation. And we thought here's a good chance to actually just review a book on its merits and say, you know, this isn't to be, there are things wrong with it, but it's not to be sneered at. And and why isn't he taken quite as seriously as he? But that's very rare. And there were complaints. <laughs> There were letters yeah. of complaint about that. You know, I don't buy the eye to see reasonably, <laughs> reasonably enthusiastic reviews of. But just once in a while, it seems a good thing to do. I think Literary Review was actually begun just before Ian became editor. I, th- I think so. It was begun in early 86. And I think it was done simply to annoy Obron War. By, who was then editor of the Literary Review, by right. using the logo, you see, of the Literary Review. It was simply done to annoy him. And the original reviews were signed. A.N. Wilson used to sign them. Uh, and then this stopped, because I think he thought this was, he wasn't doing him any good <laughs> signing these, these reviews. So they became anonymous. I started doing them at the end of 1986. Um, I remember the first review I ever did was of the first volume of Martin Stannard's double header on Evelyn War, so at the end of 1986. Uh, and there were one or two other people as well who, um, who sort of helped out. And I, I always thought, although nothing was said, um, I always assumed that the brief, if there was a brief, was that Literary Review existed to basically to sort of, you know, undermine the terrific old pals act that is London Literary Society. Uh, in, in, you know, which is not really to criticise London Literary Society, because it's a very small world. It always will be. You're always bound to know each other. But there does become a time when the back scratching becomes a bit too much to be borne. And also simply to, to, uh, to chip away at the very common tendency to overpraise things, which has become much worse in the last... I mean, I've been doing this 29 years now. It's become much worse in those three decades because, because there is so little space now in... Um, you know, for literary journalism, because so much of what used to be called criticism is migrating to the web, where it's not really criticism anymore. So much of what now appears in newspapers, simply because of the absence of space, not because of any collusion or people cabaling together. Uh, so much of what appears in newspapers masquerading as a book review is actually simply endorsement. 
Right. Um, I find this. I find this, and this tendency um, exists not simply in literary criticism, in music criticism as well. I mean, I if you pick up one of the music papers, you know, one of the adult music papers like Mojo or Uncut, you quite often see letters in the front from readers who say, "Look, you give virtually everything four stars. It can't really be that good. In ten years' time, who will ever have heard of the Screaming Abdabs or whoever the band is? You know, shouldn't you be more honest with your readers and actually grade? You know, in, in, to be perfectly objective." Uh, the reader will say, most of the albums that you review every month are worth two or three stars. And I find that about books in some ways, and especially when you've got sort of, they're, they're, they're a kind of, you know, they're, for example, I mean, just to give you an example, and again, this is a, this is a writer I admire, who I think would, uh, you know, I've always admired her, her honesty about her books, which is someone like Zadie Smith, you see, who when she appeared as a 25-year-old multicultural novelist was acclaimed as a complete genius for a novel that was quite promising and has gone on being acclaimed as a complete genius by people who ought to know better when she herself admits quite modestly that you know her early stuff wasn't perhaps terribly good but she thinks she's getting better and she hopes she'll get better still and and she seems to have a much more objective idea about her her books than um than a lot of her more frenzied fans on both sides <laughs> so i think it's important that when someone like zadie smith or Julian Barnes, or Ian McEwan, or uh, anyone like that, you know, The Guardian, Faithful, whenever they produce a book, I think they should really have a remorseless lens trained on them, because they are, they are so likely to be, you know, given more kudos than they're worth. And this is not to say that I dislike any of these writers, I just think that it is a tendency for them to be perhaps heaped with more salams than they, they probably ought to be. <laughs> so the eye reviews are basically a uh hefty corrective on the other side of the scale corrective yeah Yeah. or sometimes you know sometimes you'll read a dozen reviews of a book and they'll all have missed something they'll admit or you you assume you know from the 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 olympian crag on which i sit pronouncing (laughs) you suddenly think but hang on the point about this book is this and nobody seems to have spotted it or you might pick a book that you think is representative of a particular angle on life or a particular sort of coin of vantage or a particular lifestyle. I mean, I remember, I think, I remember two, three or four years ago, Miriam Gross, former you know, literary editor of the Sunday Telegraph, wrote a memoir of her early life, which was quite a fas- fascinating book and not at all, you know, not, not, a, not, a, not a book to criticise, to adversely criticise, but it, it, it had a great deal to say about well, you know, literary life in bygone ages. So this seemed a worthwhile book to do in the eye because you could make some points about how the world you were involved in used to work 30, 40 years ago, and here was a, here was a conduit. So it wasn't a case of sort of dissing the book. It was a case of using it to examine the world that lay behind it, which, again, I think is an important function of criticism, if this is what it is. I mean, I have yeah. to say that I, I write for all kinds of, you know, I, I write reviews for all kinds of magazines, and the two periodicals that I like writing for the most are the I and the Times of True Supplement you know the uh, the alpha and the omega (laughs) because they again I don't want to ask who's the alpha and who's the omega no 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 no. (laughs) but in each case you know you're allowed to say exactly what you like and nobody mucks you about in January I've got a big sort of not an academic but a big critical book out about I suppose what you call literary culture in the 20th century. What's it called? It's called The Prose Factory. It's out in January. Very good. Just to get the plug in, very important. The the Prose Factory, literary life in England (laughs) since 1918. There are, in fact, several references to the eye because um, uh, there is a chapter about Arts Council funding of literature in the 1970s and 80s. And, of course... Bron War was having a fantastic time assaulting the arts councils, um, the money that they used to put into arts magazines at the time. You know, the classic eye target that was. So there's quite a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. He seems like maybe one of the old school, slightly more savage uh, well, reviewers that you I were did, referring uh, to. Yeah, you see, I grew up reading his um, 
his book reviews. I mean, his signed book reviews, obviously, yeah. more. And in fact, he, he, I, I am myself the luckless victim of his asperity. I mean, he once, about a quarter of a century ago, and I published a book of literary criticism called A Vain Conceit, which was a kind of attack on all those old you know, all the, the Amoses and the Murdochs and the Drabbles in the 80s. And for some reason, I don't know why, War was f- absolutely furious about it. He absolutely hated it. And he hated me and he thought I represented every, you know, uncivilized tendency in literature that ever there was. And so what he did, he first he reviewed it at length, savagely in The Independent, because he had a weekly review column there. I think he actually called me Noodle Brain or something <laughs> like that, or some, you know, full of these awful insults. And then he wrote a whole column about it in The Spectator. But, you see, this was his genius. He thought, I'm gonna, I really want to give it to this kid. Um, I don't want to give him any publicity. So <laughs> the, the, the piece, the whole column just began, a newly fashionable young literary critic has said, didn't mention wow. my name, didn't mention the name of the book, just ranted on for a thousand words. And there was no Very publicity clever. value at all because hardly anybody, you had to be a real insider to know who he was talking about or what the book was, and he just ranted away. And after, I mean, you know, years after that, I mean, we, we met and I used to write for the Literary Review and we, you know, we got on very well. And, and, and I, I remember writing to him, actually, after the review came out and saying, I, I, I think I have to tell you that you, uh, you exaggerate my hostility to the name of war and just listed, you know, and I said, and I've read this, this, and I used to read your column because I was a huge fan of, I mean, I must be one of the few people who in 1979, uh, when he stood against Jeremy Thorpe in the North Devon by-election, I actually cut out the dog lovers, vote dog lovers sticker that the eye printed and put it in my parents' window and they were furious, you see. So I was a real, a real fan. And as a polemical journalist, I mean, he was just non-pariah when I, when I was, when I was a kid. And so it's, a, it's, a, it, I sort of reminded of this the other day because I was really, I don't know how up you are with contemporary popular music. We've heard of a band called Sleaford Mods. Yes, just about. Yeah, yeah, well, they're very loud and shouty and sweary, and you know this, and they do songs like sort of. It's basically just this bloke ranting above beats, and um, and they were um, and somebody interviewed them and said, "Are you aware that Paul Weller, you know, the mod father, Paul Weller, when asked what he thought of Sleaford Mods, says, oh, they're cunts.' <laughs> so which, and the bloke said, "Well, I mean, I regard that as a bit of a compliment. You know, I used to put him, he, I had his poster on my wall when I was a kid. If he thinks I'm a cunt, well, fair play to him. You know? <laughs> and I felt a bit like that, you know, with with being sort of." savaged by by Oberon War. I thought, this man, I admire this man. He Now he hates me. Well, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this, but it's better than being completely, <laughs> completely ignored. DJ Taylor there. That's it for this week. This has been our last episode before Christmas, so we hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to be back relatively soon after Christmas with another one. Until then, have a very grumpy Christmas. Buy the magazine and see you next time. Goodbye.